continuing through these great stories. Right, what we saw last week was just this amazing miracle of faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would trust God for God's sake, not because of any of the benefits that they were going to get. You know, whether I live nor die, God is God. I'm willing to go into the flames of this fiery furnace. And there's, there's more to learn about following Jesus from this passage, so I want to read it again, and we'll look at it from a different angle. And so let's read this and, and pray. But this is God, God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, which is 90 feet, and its breadth six cubits. And he set up it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, and they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn Pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, 
and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, What? I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, language, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And this is God's word. Uh, he has spoken to us today, and uh, it's true and trustworthy. Uh, let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we, we thank you for this great story of faith and ask that you would use their courage to, to grow courage and faith in us, that we might know and experience that, that you are with us in the furnace and the fiery trials that we are walking through. So help our faith to grow today that we too may trust you in the flames and be public witnesses that you are a God who is able to rescue and save and deliver this way. And so we ask these things and more than we even know to ask uh, um, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, did you think that was a bit uh, redundant? or endless, tedious, superfluous, <laughs> just unnecessary, long, and repetitive, as one commentator put it. Right? It's, it's, it's amazing when you read this in your head, you don't realize how painful it is and to read the repetition over and over again. And it makes you wonder, are they just bad storytellers? Right? Why, would, why would it be so repetitious? Because it sounds silly when you say it out loud. We're going to look at that, but one of the accusations that we get as religious people, religious people in general, right, is that if you believe in God because of what some book says, 
You're just a mindless follower. You don't use your brain. You're not thinking. That, that, that religion will make you mindless. Because you're unable to think for yourself, you're dependent on a God who communicates. Right? And Karl Marx is probably one of the more famous ones to say that. Um, he would say, religion is like a painkiller for the people. It's just an illusion to help you find comfort while you're suffering. But it will not give you courage to stand up against injustice. All right? Isn't that interesting? Especially you just compare that to the story, right? Daniel says, yeah, I'm with Karl Marx on that one. Man-made religion will make you mindless, repetitive, redundant. Um, it forces you to not think, just to go along with the flow of whatever everyone else is doing. Right? If you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're showing you that if there is a God out there, outside of our world, and you're connected to him, you have the freedom to swim upstream against what the culture is saying and doing. They show us what's different about faith in a God who's real. That, that the God of the Bible is able to save in this way, and he saves these three friends from participating in the culture's thoughtless, mindless idolatry. Right? And when you look at them and they say, God can rescue us, he might not. Do your worst. We choose the flames. Right? That's not mindless at all. They've counted the cost. Right? Both their logic and their love for God is on fire. And so what I want to do with you this morning as we meditate on this passage is ask, where do we get that countercultural courage um, to think differently than the world around us? Because we trust who, what the Bible says, who God is. Right? To have that, their confidence, their lack of defensiveness. Right? They're not grumpy about it, being minority and suffering. And so I was helped by a guy named Viktor Frankl, who suffered in the German concentration camps. Right? So he saw horrific suffering. And he said, you know, he who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Right? If you have a reason to live, especially a divine reason, Right, that, that'll give you, that gives you strength to deal with whatever good or bad comes your way. And with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have more than a why to live. They also have that question, why am I going to die? They have that answered. And that gives them strength to face their trouble. And so, they have courage and trust. How do we get that? And that's, that's what we're going to do as we walk through this chapter together. And got two points. We're going to look at the immense pressure they're under, and we're going to look at the promise that God gives. And so let's start here with the immense pressure that everybody is under. And if, if I had to guess, uh, the pressure to bow down to a massive golden image of a cruel dictator on an open plains is probably not something you went through this past week. <laughs> right? It doesn't, doesn't feel like it's hitting too close to home. Right? But there's actually an immense, there's a, a big similarity to the, to the pressure that these three friends are under and what the pressure that we are under. And it's this immense pressure to thoughtlessly just conform and go with whatever our culture says is true. Uh, to, to be changed, to submit to what the culture says is most important, their idolatry, 
which we'll talk about what that means. All right, so if you're, you're new to the Bible, what is idolatry? Well, again, it's an old word that, that is actually super helpful, and it's a great counseling word. Right, but if you go back to the Ten Commandments, and you think of the Ten Commandments as a marriage contract, a covenant, that's what it is. It's God's covenant promises with his people. He says, here's how you live life with me. Right? Every good marriage, there's no other spouse, so no, have no other gods before me. And then commandment two, which is where the idolatry thing comes from, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or the waters below. Don't bow down to them, don't serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And what that image is, what that commandment's after is saying, don't make any physical images of, of what you think God is like, what you want God to be like. It's also connecting to this, to this idea of we shouldn't give anything in all of creation the credit that God alone deserves for being God. Um, right? Don't give God-like importance to the gifts he gives you. Right? And this commandment, comes with both a promise and a consequence, right? There's, there's good news and bad news, right? He says, I'm a jealous God. Uh, I visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but I show steadfast love. Here's the comparison to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We'll see jealousy play out, but this is how idolatry works. Um, the negative of God's command on how to, how to be human, how to live well. Don't commit idolatry. Don't bow down to man-made things. Don't, don't make anyone or anything to have the centrality and significance that God alone deserves as your creator. Or you could turn that around. It's not just saying don't do that. What it's positively saying is you ought to love God by being faithful to him. And don't mix up in your head what you want him to be like, right? Don't, don't put your image of what you want God to be like. Experience him for who he actually is. So you could use it this way. If you're in a marriage, guys, this is good free marriage counseling. Don't swap the, the, the photo of your wife with your hobby, right? Don't Photoshop your wife out of the marriage photo and put your career or your favorite car or that, that buck you just shot this week, this weekend, right? That's weird, it's saying you love that thing too much. And nor should you change your spouse's name or change the picture to another woman and still use your spouse's name. Right? Ouch. But that's what idolatry is. It's giving something on earth godlike significance and even sometimes still calling it the Lord. So if you have that framework in your head, this starts to make Daniel 3 pretty, pretty helpful and relevant. Because the issue for every follower of Jesus that has ever been and ever will be is we're called to not give in to the culture's idolatry, to, to love what they love. We're called to love God and love what he loves. And so that comes with conflict. And so you got two pressures going on. On the one hand, like like these three friends, everyone outside is doing one thing and saying politics, power, that matters most, right? Outside pressure. But then you have your own heart, 
<laughs> John Calvin would say, our heart's an idol factory. We're constantly manufacturing things to take God's place because who wants to be told what to do? All right, so this is, this is starting to get painfully relevant and real. Dan, these three friends here in Daniel 3 are under immense pressure because three men alone, or at least in this story, are under this pressure to make Nebuchadnezzar, to make career, to make their life, to make comfort, to make politics, to make power central or lose their life. And everyone bows down but them. And so it sets up the, the conflict is either hide and be like the culture who doesn't know God or stand out like a sore thumb because God is with you and you trust him. And that's the battle. Right? Am I going to go public with my faith even if it makes me look different from my neighbors? Right? So what does idolatry look like for us modern people? Right? I mean, there's this giant golden image. Um, we don't necessarily have that. I'm, you might have a garden gnome, but it's not quite the same. Right? So we're all wrestling with idolatry. When, and it feels, it feels like a furnace. Right? These three men, when life turns up the heat, when life gets hard, where do you run to for comfort, for peace? to protect yourself. We're going to see these repetitions play out like addictions. That's what idolatry does. I mean, some of us have, have or do turn to alcohol, uh, drugs. It could be pornography. Uh, it could be our career. It could be our smartphone. It could be social media. It could be a person, right? Turning to the person you love and say, because you are here, you alone make my life significant. No pressure. Or maybe you're just like Nebuchadnezzar. We all are a bit, aren't we? I just want to be in charge. My will is my idol. Right? What I find helpful, if you want to know what your idols are, what turns your face to rage? Look at verse 19. When these three men turn to Nebuchadnezzar and say, we're not going to do what you want. God has the power to save us. He may, he may not. And it says the expression, the image of his face changed to rage and fury. Right? When his idol was threatened, he got angry irrationally. Right? So if you want to know what your idols are, your anger is kind of like a, a temperature gauge. Right? If someone just honestly politely gives you honest criticism of something and you just explode and you snap and you're ready to turn on the flamethrower like Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> right? It's probably an idol. You're giving something too much love and, and attention. Right? You can think of simple things, right? If you're talking to an alcoholic, are you drinking too many beers? And they just get mad and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Are you watching too much political commentary? Don't you care about my country? <laughs> right, you see how this works, right? Our anger shows us what's going on in the heart. Right, and this, this helps you see how much pressure ne these three friends are under because Nebuchadnezzar is using threat and fear and anger and, and the 
all of the culture to say, be like us or die. And so who are the mindless ones and who are the free? It turns out to be the faithful that are free. Because you got the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the provincial officials, and all the nations, the people, the languages. They hear the music, and they mindlessly fall down. So, how are you doing with your battles against idolatry? How much of what you believe is formed by what God says and what he loves versus what the culture says? And are you willing to think differently for God's sake? You have all kinds of things that come out that way, right? It doesn't matter what you believe. It's my body, my choice. Don't tell me what to do with my life. Or someone will say, I'm glad your faith works for you, but your faith is your faith, and it's not my faith. So if there is a God who made the world, that's nice for you. Uh, There's pressure to, you know, we're at war with the other. Democrats, Republicans, choose a side. Be morally revolted by the other. There's pressure on you and I to fit a certain mold. The question is, are you thinking about it? And this is why I like Daniel. This is what the scriptures are for. This is what we do at church. This is what discipleship is all about, is helping us together in a community go to war against our personal idols and the idols of the culture. And to look at it, right? This is what, this is what idolatry makes you, and this is why I love the way this story is told. Look what idolatry does to people. It makes us mindless and silly. All those, all the music, the musical instruments you hear, and there's no thought involved, you just fall down. It's just an automatic response. That's what idolatry does. It makes us like mindless robots just following our desires wherever they may lead. So look at, look at the, the passage. Here's, here's a great illustration of this. It's, it's Pavlov's dog, right? You hear the bell. And you respond. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the TV show, The Office. Right, it's a great prank. It shows us the silliness of idolatry and what's happening here. Right? So this guy named Jim works with his buddy Dwight. And for several weeks, this is what Jim did. He would push a button on his computer. Windows would ding. You get the sound, the music, the, the liar from Windows. <laughs> he said, hey, Dwight, you want an Altoid? For weeks, every day. Ding, you want an Altoid? Ding, you want an Altoid? And then came the day, like a couple months later, where he just made a ding, and Dwight just went. He's like, what are you doing? I I don't know. (laughs) Right? Why does my mouth taste so bad all of a sudden? (laughs) And we all laugh, Jim smirks, and we're all in on the joke. But isn't that what's happening in our text? Right? That every person who hears the horn, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music just ding, and they fall down and react, and they don't even think about it. See, that's what George Schwab, a, a Bible nerd, says, right? They become mindless, lifeless robots, just like that image. 
They don't have the ability to think. Meaning, if you worship, if you make something other than the living God your center, it makes us less than human. That's what Psalm 135 is about. If you trust in idols, you actually start to imitate them. Right? You're going to look like them. What you love, you imitate. And what Daniel 3 is saying, look at how weird that makes you. It's uncomfortable. Right? But there is another way, and that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show us. If you're alive to God, if it sets you free from these addictive, thoughtless responses and behavior of everyone else around you. That's what Schwab would say, that if you have God's love and God's life in, your lo- in, in you, that's what empowers you to take a stand against idolatry. Even if you're threatened with suffering and loss. Because the life God gives can never be taken away. Not even death itself can take God's presence away from you. He who has a why to live and die can bear with almost any how. And so that sets up a question, and we can talk about this later, but what are you being discipled by? What voices are you listening to? Uh, How much priority do you have Have you given to God and his word and his will and his ways? Um, There is a repetition to it, to to following Jesus, for sure, because we need to hear his voice amidst all the noise out there to distinguish truth from what dehumanizes us. Of course, the problem is the music plays every day, doesn't it? The music of our idols. Life gets hard. Ding, we put our hand out. We don't even realize we're doing it because we've been trained to not think Christian ways. And so what draws us from idolatry to faith? And this is where we see this is helpful for us as witnesses of what happened. We get to see the power of God's promise that does draw us away from our idols. Right? So you got that picture, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, alone, swimming upstream against the culture, against the anger and rage, willing to look weird in everyone's eyes. And what's the response? You look at 19, Nebuchadnezzar's furious. These soldiers are commanded to tie them up and throw them into this fiery furnace. And right, you you get an idea how hot it is, right? The soldiers burn like overdone marshmallows. I mean, they're, they're just treated like less than human by Nebuchadnezzar. Right, this furnace is up in a pit. Right? They're thrown down into this fiery pit. And it must have some kind of window where Nebuchadnezzar can watch his justice burn. Right? And that's why he says, weren't there three men in the fire? Right? And they say, certainly, that's, that's what happened. But I see a fourth. They're walking around unhurt, and there's a fourth one who looks like a son of the gods. And so then you're left with, who is that guy and where did he come from? Right? He looks human because he's walking around. He appears divine. In verse 28, this person's called an angel. Who is this? Right? Seems to be this mysterious figure from the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. 
who is in the fire with God's loved ones in suffering. He appears both human and divine. You can see how this is setting you up for Jesus. In the Old Testament, one of the famous places this happens is in Exodus, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. It actually says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses on the mountain in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush, and the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. So that's when Moses says, well, I've got to see what's happening here. And then instead of the angel of the Lord talking, all of a sudden God starts speaking. So you're wondering, who's in the bush? Whatever, whoever this person is, this is the promise that you're supposed to see, that God sent a servant, a messenger, to be with his people in fiery trials and suffering. And that's God's promise to you. I am with you in the fire. That's the promise. Isaiah 43, don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. So when you pass through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I am the Lord your God, your Savior. It's Isaiah's comforting words. So whatever you're going through, as you fight idolatry, what draws us away is to see the different way God loves us rather than the idols. Idols threaten, God comes alongside with his love, his presence, that for better or worse, he's with you in life and in death, in the fire. We need to see this, right? These are faithful guys. They've done the right thing, and they still suffer. One of the things my father heard a lot as a hospice chaplain was things like this. This one's from a, a sweet 93-year-old lady who was depressed. And she said, you know, why do I have to suffer like this? I didn't smoke, I don't drink, I didn't commit adultery or lie. It's not fair that this hurts so bad. She's surprised by her suffering. And yet what this does... What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show us, um, just because you're suffering, it doesn't mean God isn't with you, and it doesn't mean that there aren't blessings to be found. Right? We, all, we all often are, suffer, are surprised by suffering, especially if you expect your goodness to buy you a get-out-of-jail-free card, so to speak, to keep you from the flames. So often we learn faith in trouble, because that's when we realize I can't do it on my own. So look long and hard at these guys. They're sinners. They're like you and I. But in this moment, they're faithful, and yet God let them be dropped into the fiery furnace. And this is what makes it so comforting. They're, they're, They're showing us a future picture of Jesus, the only perfect one, the actual perfect one. Right? If Jesus' life and death is the standard, what did Jesus get for his perfect obedience? The cross. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, said Isaiah. Jesus, you get the fiery furnace of God's judgment despite your faithfulness in order to rescue us. All right, and this is part of the point of the story is these guys were delivered 
But Jesus was not. He wasn't rescued. Jesus was burned to a crisp in the judgment that happened to him on the cross. He died. His perfection did nothing to stop that suffering. In fact, he went through it silently like a lamb being led to the slaughter. And so if we're Christians, followers of Jesus, why would we expect anything different? It's not a fun message. (laughs) Peter says, rejoice if you suffer like Jesus. One more point, and this will draw us away from our idols. All right. The promise is God is with you in the flames. And did you know that Jesus actually used Daniel 3 to teach you what God's rule is like? It's in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, turn with me there. I, I didn't get this on the projector. Um, but I'll, I'll read it. It's not too hard to understand. Um, it's Jesus' parable in the kingdom of heaven. All right, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Right, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, but instead of Nebuchadnezzar being on the throne and bringing around justice, it's now the Son of Man on the throne and bringing about justice and taking care of the lawbreakers, the idolaters, all the causes of sin, the things that cause people to suffer. All right, so here's verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them. He said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Are you just a bad farmer, is their question? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. To which we say, okay, Jesus, what are you talking about? The disciples said the same thing. So you go down to verse 36, and the disciples say to Jesus, explain to us, what did that parable of the weeds mean? Right? And Jesus said, well, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. That's Christians. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you got the picture. He's alluding to Daniel there. I think you're meant to do this. Compare the patience of King Jesus with the impatience of Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, submit now or get thrown in the furnace. 
King Jesus, let the weeds grow alongside the good seed. Right? So just follow the metaphor. If, if weeds are going to grow, they have to be watered, cared for, fed. Right? Far, the farmer has to take care of them. Uh, part of the image I think you're meant to see is how patient God is with people who ignore him, who don't love him as they ought. He lets the weeds go until the end. His kindness is meant to lead you and I to repentance. Second, look at how Jesus uses Daniel 3. All the causes of misery, all the Nebuchadnezzar-like people, uh, the lawbreakers, the idolaters, right? That would be included. At the end of history, all the damage that idolatry has done will be dealt with. Jesus throws them into the fiery furnace. That sets up a conundrum. God's judgment is coming at the end of all things. Right? You need Jesus to pull out the weeds, to gather them, to, to deal with people whose anger burns brightly and hurts other people, the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. That gives hope if you've been injured. Right? God will right that wrong if you've been harmed. But then the flip side is, if God is going to deal with someone whose anger has harmed someone else, what hope is there for me? What hope do I have to get through God's judgment at the end of all things? How do I avoid the fiery furnace? Right? I stand condemned. And that's why you've got to look at the cross. And then there's a whole lot of contrast going on. But think about it this way. Jesus, the Son of Man, the judge, sitting on the throne. Before he made the world, he knew we were going to cheat on him. Right? God knew that sin was going to happen. And the charge for everybody at the end of all things, you have loves that are more than me, and because you love things that are more than me, those addictions that you chose that hurt you and hurt others and offended me and provoked God's jealousy, right? you deserve to be cast out. And so the sentence is judgment and death, fiery furnace. But at some point before the foundation of the world, God the Father and God the, G- and God the Son got together and made a covenant. And God the Father said, I'm going to send you, my son, into the flames for my loved ones. Jesus said, yes, I volunteer for that. Right? The Father sent him into the world. And so it helps you understand the cross when you see that King Jesus, the judge, steps off his throne in heaven, comes down into earth with his face not full of fury but with mercy and compassion for those who did not want him, sinners, and says, I'm going to jump into the fires of God's judgment in your place. And he went alone. There was no angel to deliver him. Dean DeGood put it, there was no companion to share his burden, he had no friends, no angel to relieve his agony, no saving hand from God came down to pull him out of that judgment. There was no deliverance from the terrors of suffering or even death itself. That is how God loves you. It's the bright blazing fires of God's love for you. He was with you in the flames when you deserve to be judged. 
And so if he was with you when you were at your worst, how much more will he be with you as you go through fiery trials as his loved one, even now? That's what starts to go to war with your idolatry. If God loves me that much, right? Idols don't forgive, they condemn. Idols let you burn alone. Jesus jumps into the fire with you. Idols are going to humiliate you and make you feel like failure. Jesus goes down into the pit to pull you out, to honor you. So when Nebuchadnezzar said, no other God can rescue in this way, he was speaking the truth. Right? He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Jesus died so that you and I, all who trust him by faith, can pass through the threatening fires of death unburned, unscathed, and emerge unsinged on the other side. It's called resurrection. Look at how you're loved. It's not be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's look at the faithfulness you are received from Jesus. That's even more courageous and faithful than those guys, Jesus. And if you trust Jesus, God accepts you as if you lived the life Jesus lived and died the death Jesus died. When you realize that, that's what motivates you to say, man, maybe there's something to this Jesus in the way he loves and the way he lives. Tim Keller would say, if you remember Christ went into the furnace for you, then you will feel the furnace, you will feel him with you in your furnaces right now. If you know he went through the fire for you, then you can feel him with you in the fire. Do you believe that? Conclude this way. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond to how God delivered and rescued? It, does he believe yet? He's seen the miracle, right? God saving these guys. Uh, he legislates faith, biblical faith <laughs> in a violent way. It's terrifying. It's not recommended. Right? He makes a national decree that anyone says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces, for no other God can save in this way. It's their God. It's not my God. It's their God. He was impressed, right? but not enough to submit by faith. And that's what we said again last week. Nebuchadnezzar needs multiple experiences with God's work and wonders before he comes to praise God for himself. So today, this is what I want you to see. The miracle of God's deliverance for us in Christ, the God who delivers us from his judgments, the God who walks with us in suffering and does promise to pull us through by giving us the new creation. He says, you are mine. Don't be afraid. I will be with you in the flames. I have saved you from the fires of judgment and death. And so we're sent from here, right? Not as mindless followers of the culture. We're sent now as God's beloved children, having seen God's passionate love for us in Christ. To hear John's words once again, little children, keep yourself from idols. Look at how he loves Let's pray. Father, there's a lot happening in this passage, and you know our hearts. 
you know where we're at. And so I pray in our battles against idolatry, being loved by the Savior um, would form us into a people who love you and love others if we have been loved. May, that, may your suffering draw us away from our idols that, that cause you to be jealous. Um, but I pray that through everything we talked about today, that Hope Church would be a place that we are different because we look at the culture and we look at your word and we look at the gospel and say, I want to follow Jesus because his word is true and trustworthy and he gave himself up for me in love. May we speak those words across the street and around the world as his witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.